I'm reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 10 to 31. This is page 1228 in the following Jesus Bible, and you can find it on page 952 in your pew Bibles. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping down to verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to be God. To God. Uh, Ms. Brittany is going to take our little ones, if you, uh, first grade and under, if you'd like to go for children's worship and nursery, you may be dismissed.
Todd, I kind of like your Jeff Foxworthy thing. Can I, can I keep that going for a little bit? I got my own to try out. Yeah. So, so we didn't we didn't plan this. We didn't plan this. But my sermon, uh, I wanted to open kind of like Jeff Foxworthy as well. Here we go. If you think you're smart, you might be. But you're probably also arrogant. If you think you're beautiful, you might be. But you're probably also arrogant. If you think you're gifted and successful, you might be. But you're probably also arrogant. Anytime we look at ourselves and think, well done me, good on you, good job. We probably have an arrogance problem. Arrogance is a common sin, and yet I've never preached on it before. In 24 years of preaching, I've never preached a sermon on arrogance. Why not? And why now? I don't know why not, except I've never preached through 1 Corinthians, and maybe because the topic hits a little close to home for me. Um, And as far as why now, I, I, I doubt I have to tell you. Think back on 2020, on 2021, how would you describe our communal cultural experience over the last two years? We've had a a complicated presidential election, painful racial conflict, and a frustrating pandemic. So if you had to put a name on the spirit of the age, what would it be? Would it be division, fear, uh, oppression? Isolation, misinformation. I've heard all these words kind of applied to this this season we've been enduring. If I were going to choose a word to describe the spirit of our age, I would choose the word arrogance. The arrogance and disdain that people have had uh, toward and and for one another has been staggering, uh, even among Christians. How often... Have we looked at other Christians who disagree with us on one of these hot cultural touch points and felt yourself exasperated how ignorant, stupid, and wrong they could be? How often have have we thought, gosh, what an idiot. If they would just think like me, if they would read the things that I had read, and if they would agree with me, if they could only see things from my perspective, but they won't listen. I, I guess they're just dense. That's... Arrogance, plain and simple. Because you can be right and you can be wrong and still be arrogant about it. So where does this arrogance come from? Well, it certainly comes from our our sinful nature, but I, I think there's something more than that. If you like to take notes, here's the first blank in your back of your worship guide. The culture that we inhabit has intentionally cherished and cultivated arrogance as a virtue. The world we live in has intentionally cherished and cultivated arrogance as a virtue. That arrogance seems to just kind of be in the air is no accident. It's no coincidence. Arrogance is a cultural value of the world that you inhabit. Have you watched TV? Have have you watched the people that we idolize? Watch any reality TV show. The whole point of reality TV is to be arrogant and catty toward the other people. 
Look at how politicians talk about people on the other side of the aisle. It doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. They look down their nose at the opponent, their opponents like they have the intelligence of a tennis ball. The rich in our culture think that the poor are ignorant and lazy. And the poor think the rich are a bunch of stiffy, uh, stuffy jerks. Arrogance is not found in one culture or one career path or one demographic in the United States. It's everywhere. Arrogance is just in the water. It's in the air. Here's your next blank. Paul experienced a similar culture when he was starting the church, when he was planting the church in Corinth. When he was planting the church in Corinth, he found a very similar culture. So this Sunday... And the next two Sundays, we're going to try to sort through the cultural stench of arrogance that we inhabit. And to do that, we're going to look at the first four chapters in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I'm sure you all remember Paul the Apostle, wrote the majority of the New Testament, and uh, planted churches throughout uh, Turkey and into Greece. And in Corinth, Greece, he found himself facing a very real arrogance problem in that town. One of my preaching professors at Gordon-Conwell had this to say in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. It's printed in your worship guide. Dr. Champa, along with his co-author, said this. Roman Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic. Accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Its inhabitants were marked by the worship of idols, sexual immorality, and greed sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Roman Corinth didn't have internet, but they seem to understand the modern American ethos. This sounds like New York. It sounds like Los Angeles. It sounds like St. Tammany Parish. Corinthian life was about who you knew, what you had achieved, and where you were headed. They were just like us, obsessed by other people's perception of them. How much time, effort, and energy we put into how other people are going to think about us. How much time and effort we put into impressing other people and aiming to be seen in certain ways. But the, the number one, the greatest social capital in Corinth, the thing that could really get you ahead was wisdom. If you could be known as wise. Here's your next blank. The arrogance of Corinth can be defined in this way. A hunger for wisdom that would improve your status, but not necessarily your soul. That was what they wanted in Corinth. They had a hunger for wisdom that would improve your status, but not your soul. Each Corinthian citizen wanted some special knowledge, some wisdom, some intelligence, some insight that would put them one step above the masses so the people would look at them and say, Man, I wish I thought like that guy. I wish I was wise like him. He's brilliant. I should be more like him. This wisdom, though, was aimed at getting social status, the praise of men, but it didn't improve their souls. Their souls were rotting as the masses praised them. It worked like this. So you have these kind of traveling orators, philosophers who would come to town. They would speak in public. So you've got the Epicureans, you've got the Stokes, you've got all these different philosophical schools. And so you would go and you'd listen to them, and you'd say, you know what, I think this guy... He's on to something. I'm, I'm a Stoic now. I'm going to be a Stoic. My family's going to be Stoic with me. And what would happen then is you'd start to hang out with the people who thought like you. 
And you'd think real badly of the people who didn't think like you. Well, at least I'm not like the Epicureans. They're kind of hedonists over there. They got their drinking parties. And, uh, no, we're not like that. We're Stoics, right? And so there were kind of these factions within Corinthian life based upon these different philosophies. But the question is, is that really wisdom? Kind of affiliating with a way of thought that separated you from others and made you feel smart and made other people say you were smart? That's the question. Did it do anything good for them? Look at verse 19 in our text. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul looks at the Corinthian culture, taking all of its sides, and he says, all your wisdom is trash. It's worthless. It's not getting you anything. I don't care, Paul says, who you affiliate with. The wisest Corinthians didn't have the most important piece of wisdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. Paul says your wisdom can't save your soul. Ironically, the wisest in Corinth thought the gospel was foolishness. Thought it was ridiculous. They thought it was folly. So the wisdom of the Corinthians from Paul's perspective is worthless, and the Corinthian philosophers thought the same of the gospel. But here's the sad subtext. Why do the Corinthians feel a need to affiliate with these different schools of thought? Why did the Corinthians feel a need to be smarter, wiser, more enlightened than their neighbors? They were trying to justify their own existence. They weren't quite the the, the postmodern existentialists that we are, but there's a lot of similarity between us and them. Because what happens today? Ordinary man looks at his life. The ordinary woman looks at her life and says, what in the world am I doing? Every day, I wake up, I eat, I go to work, I love, and then I go back to sleep. And it's hard, really hard. And sometimes I, 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 I don't feel like I'm making any difference here. I don't feel like I'm making any progress because eventually I'm just going to die in the middle of this daily cycle. So what if? What does this mean? Why do I exist? You know, if I could get just a little bit of wisdom while I'm still alive, while I'm on this planet, maybe that wisdom will give my life some meaning. And if I'm wise, I can leave a legacy behind that that, that means something. And and if I can get in a community of people that believe the same thing, then maybe that will make this life hurt less and mean more. This is what every human being today faces if they're honest with themselves, right? And it's not too far 
from what the Corinthians were doing either. Here's your next blank. The Corinthians were just like us, trying to make life seem worth living. Trying to make life seem worth living. They sought meaning and purpose. Sought meaning and purpose. So how could they get some wisdom that would make life worth living, that would make sense of all this? In the Corinthian context, that meant associating yourself with wise people. You listen to philosophers, you listen to orators, you listen to the sophists, you find the school that seems the most wise and lofty to you, you become a disciple of that teacher, a member of that community. And by doing so, you not only find wisdom, but meaning. Through association with wise people, you get connections, status, and the wisdom that you need for a life worth living. This is American culture from top to bottom. How do you get ahead? How do you establish yourself? How can your life have meaning? Associate with the right people, learn what you can, find a community that agrees with you and gives you meaning, establish yourself in it. But there's a problem with this line of thinking. It improves your status. It might even improve your self-image, but it doesn't improve your soul. You can have this wisdom. You can have these associations. You can have the prestige that comes with it, and it can be a total waste. Why? Because it doesn't lead to righteousness, sanctification, or redemption. To associate with these philosophers, to establish yourself in the world's wisdom would make you just like everybody else. Your life would look like everyone else's. You would live like everyone else. And like everyone else, you would go to hell if you live on that path. These people so wanted wisdom and the status, power, and prestige that it would give them. But Paul responds this way. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you, Corinthian Christians, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? Wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification. And redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul says what every Corinthian man needs, what every Corinthian woman needs, what every Corinthian boy and girl needs is not a worldly wisdom that leads to death. They need wisdom from God, namely Jesus Christ. And if you get that wisdom, you will be different. You will have a life worth living because that wisdom leads to righteousness. Sanctification and redemption. That's what he says in verses 30 and 31. You want to grow in this life? You want to have a life worth living? You want heaven? You want resurrection? You want perfect holiness in the next life? Then don't boast in all this worldly wisdom. It gains your soul nothing. Boast in Christ alone. He is the wisdom that you need. Here's your next blank. The only wisdom that saves and doesn't destroy you is the wisdom from God, which is Jesus Christ. The only wisdom that saves and doesn't destroy you is the wisdom from God, which is Jesus Christ. This problem in Corinth is a problem of the 21st century West. People look at their lives, 
They see something without meaning, so what do they do? They seek out wisdom so they can get a better position in the world. I mean, how many new books have come out probably in the last month about creating your own platform, right? Making yourself known or finding your digital tribe. The whole concept is to use your expertise, your wisdom, the the wisdom that you have, and then to position yourself as an expert, gather people around you, and profit from that. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with being an influencer or being an entrepreneur, does that mindset and that wisdom that you have really make your life meaningful? Is your wisdom, and none of y'all are influencers, I don't think you are, but the wisdom that you have, the wisdom that you boast in, is it making you righteous? Is your wisdom growing you in holiness? Is it causing you to live out of your union with Christ or is it just something else? Another area where we can see this cultural tendency toward the sort of arrogance is in virtue signaling, which I think it's really funny that in the last two years we've, had, we've come up with this new term called, called virtue signaling. We, we've called it Phariseeism for years. Conservatives were good at this before liberals were. It's very simple. We're proud of how we think. We're proud of how we live. So we do it in a way so other people can see. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for that. We all do it. We want people to look at us and say, man, how good they are. Those are some really good people. And with that attention and that praise, we find vindication, meaning, and purpose. But it's pointless. Call it religiosity or legalism or virtue signaling. It doesn't lead to the things that only Jesus can give. And here's the big issue that's raised in these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Your next blank. When Christians inhabit this cultural environment that cultivates and cherishes uh, arrogance, it's easy for us to absorb this same arrogant tendency into ourselves and our community. So when we live in this world, it's easy for us to absorb this same arrogant tendency into ourselves and into our community. There's only so much TV you can watch before you start thinking like this. And the Corinthians didn't have TV. So they lived in a culture where people wanted to be recognized for their wisdom, for associating with the right thinkers, and that began to creep into the church. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what was happening within these local churches in Corinth? Members of this church were not aligning with the world's philosophers. They weren't saying, oh, I'm a Stoic, I'm an Epicurean, I'm this or that. No, they were choosing their preachers and theologians and church leaders of preference. They had their favorite elders in the church, and they kind of thought like that one does, and I'm going to spend a little more time with him. Or they liked Apollos, the new preacher that came after Paul. And what was happening is these little factions were forming little groups and cliques in the midst of the whole that were causing quarrels, schism. Christians were, were saying to each other, oh, you like Paul? You think like him? I'm more, more of an Apollos guy myself. You know, and there, there was this arrogance that was growing between 
Christians. And then those Apollos lovers would get together with the other Apollos lovers, and they'd probably talk not too bad, but just a little bad about those Paul guys because they don't think, you know, like we do. And what's interesting is in chapter 4, Paul kind of alludes to the fact that these aren't the specific factions in the Corinthian church. He was just using these names as kind of placeholders. He didn't want to pick the scab too directly. But here's what was going on. It's your next blank. In imitation of the unbelieving culture, the Corinthian Christians were acting arrogant toward one another over their supposed wisdom rooted in their leaders of choice. They were being arrogant toward one another over their supposed wisdom rooted in their leaders of choice. And Paul realizes this is, a, this is the same problem that was happening in the unbelieving world in Corinth. You're not arguing about sophistry or Gnosticism. You're arguing about Paul and Apollos. This is a worldly way of thinking. This is worldly wisdom. Look at verse 20 again. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks, you Greeks in Corinth, seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, once you guys knew that this way of thinking was foolish, because you believed in the gospel that the world thinks is foolish, you took on the foolish thing and said, this is what's going to define me. This is what's going to give me meaning. But now you've fallen into your old habits. You've become like the world again. And here's one reason why that was a problem. Your next blank. These divisions changed how Christians thought about and even judged each other. These divisions changed how Christians thought about and even judged each other. And what do we call that? Arrogance. They were arrogant toward other Christians because of their associations and their so-called wisdom that flowed from it. So Paul steps into this morass and says, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who you used to be before you became a Christian? Continuing on, let's look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul steps in and says, guys, why are you making distinctions among yourselves? Without Jesus, none of you are wise. Without Jesus, none of you are impressive. Let the one who boasts, boast not in their wisdom. Don't boast in your associations. Don't boast in your perspective. Boast in the Lord. This doesn't make sense. But why was it happening? Because the arrogant, competitive, personality-driven spirit of the culture was seeping into the church. Surely you see how twisted that is. The church, here's your next blank. The church slowly looked more like the world around it rather than looking more and more like Christ. 
was reflecting the culture it inhabited rather than looking more and more like Christ. This was the problem with their wisdom. This was the problem with their association. This wisdom that they were professing to have wasn't making them more righteous. They weren't being sanctified as individuals. They weren't being sanctified as a community. That isn't the way to redemption. It leads to destruction, in fact. Here's your next blank. When Christians, especially in the local church, are arrogant toward one another, it threatens the spiritual health not only of the whole, but of the individuals themselves. When Christians, especially in the local church, are arrogant toward one another, it threatens the spiritual health of the whole and the individual. So Paul writes this whole long letter, the book of 1 Corinthians, to address this arrogance problem along with some other serious problems that follow uh, in chapters 5 and following. But, but here's the difficulty. We live in the same world. We inhabit Corinth. We, we live in a world that's obsessed with attention, influence, and being known as an expert. Don't believe me? What are your feelings about John MacArthur? Or Beth Moore, or Russell Moore, or, or Tim Keller, or, or pick your controversial church celebrity. And, and how do you feel about the people in this congregation who disagree with you? What do you think about how they read the Bible and how they live their life in response to those teachers' influence on them? I could choose more inflammatory topics or people uh, on whom we might disagree, but I don't know that that would help us. As I look back on the last two years, I have seen remarkable arrogance among Christians, among us, even in me. Is it possible that I was the only one sinning (laughs) that way over the last two years? It's possible. But I also believe in trickle-down spiritual economics that if a pastor has a sin, it's probably well represented within the congregation too. I think the United States has an arrogance problem. I think Louisiana has an arrogance problem. St. Tammany, in whichever neighborhood you live in, probably has an arrogance problem. And I think our church has an arrogance problem. We have an arrogance problem. I know I've got it. Maybe I'm the only one. But do you have it? If we don't address it, it may very well threaten the life of this congregation, but it may also threaten you, your soul, and the souls of the other people in this room. I'll put it this way. I first communicated this to a couple of elders maybe around June, July 2020, and I tearfully (laughs) told them that there are some contentious issues being dealt with in our culture that we, as a church, as a community, we need to be able to talk about biblically and Christianly. We need to be able to talk about these things from our perspective, from Jesus' perspective, but I feel hamstrung. As a pastor, I feel like I can't bring some of these topics up in a meaningful way for fear that our community would crack and splinter into factions that are already there under the surface. I think we've already been whispering among ourselves, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Meanwhile, the greater declaration of I follow Christ seems less on our lips in these days. 
Let me put my finger on the nerve. Here's your next blank. Has the gospel taken a back seat in how you think about the other Christians in this church? Has the gospel taken a back seat in the way you think about other Christians in this church? The Christians in Corinth started thinking differently about each other based upon their allegiances and their wisdom. They felt they were superior to the other Christians in their church. Do you think of yourself as superior to the other Christians in this room because they think differently than you? Because they're differently aligned than you? What the gospel declares about you and about that other person is that... I'll re-say that. What the gospel says about you and that other person is more important and more central in how we should think about those people. The gospel should be the defining thing and paradigm through which we view each other. Look again at verse 13. Is Christ divided? The answer is no. (laughs) Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. We should view each other through the lens of the gospel. Christ is our only boast. We are fools in the eyes of the world. Christ is our only hope. He is our shared identity. Christ is the one who should bring us together. But do we think about each other that way? Do we think about each other that way? If we don't, we're likely being arrogant toward one another. Here's the other nerve. It's your next blank. Has the gospel taken a back seat in how you act toward other Christians in this church? Has it not just affected how you think about the other Christians in our church, but does it affect, is it the, the, the primary definer in how you act other Christians in this church. The Corinthian Christians were excited about their wisdom in contrast to other Christians, and the result of that was they failed to love each other. They didn't show up for each other. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul's not saying you have to agree on every little thing. But you must have the same goals in mind. You must agree on the most important things. And you may say, well, well, my position on COVID or politics or whatever is important. I agree that it's important. But is it essential to the gospel? Is your view on that thing making you more righteous? Is it sanctifying you? Does it redeem the souls of men? Which leads to the question, is you compromising or flexing or being tolerant on your belief going to bring ruin to the name of Christ or ruin to the church because our arrogance toward one another will. It will heap scorn on the name of Christ and it will bring ruin to the church. This is what we have to consider because what is our end goal as a community? What is the thing that we want more than anything else? What do we share? Look at verse 30 once more. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord this is what we want to see flourishing in our community unity love righteousness sanctification redemption the glory of god in christ we want people to be saved we want their lives to be changed and for a community of faith to be forming but we have an arrogance problem our world has it it's crept into us So next week, we're going to look at the alternative. If we're not arrogant toward one another, if we're not dividing into different camps, 
What are we? What's a better picture? What's a healthier way of relating to each other? In divided times, what does unity even look like? That's what we're going to look at next week. But the question that I want all of us to contemplate today is this. How am I contributing to the arrogance problem at faith and in our broader community? Here's four final blanks, four questions I want to encourage you to contemplate for yourself. And I'm not imputing guilt to every one of you, far from it. But I want you to consider these things and say, what part might I be playing in what's going on? So consider these questions this week. Number one, what in my mind is dividing me from the other Christians in our church? What in my mind is dividing me from the other Christians in my church? Am I thinking wrong? Number two, what barriers are causing tension in my relationships with other Christians? What are the barriers that are causing tension between you and other Christians in this church? Third, how do I need to repent (laughs) and view these brothers and sisters through the lens of the gospel? How do I need to repent and view them differently? And then last, how do I need to love them differently? Is it possible that the arrogance uh, problem in our world has crept in among us? I think that it has. I think we have an arrogance problem. But we also have a solution, namely the wisdom from God that is in Jesus Christ. We've already rehearsed the gospel. We've also already tasted and seen. And what does the gospel promise us? We can be forgiven. We can be restored. And if God can tear down the the wall of uh, hostility between Jew and Gentile, and the paltry things that have come between us in the last two years, God's Holy Spirit can tear them down too. And so it's a matter of us remembering we're forgiven, remembering who we really are apart from Christ, and then going through the process of repentance, seeing each other aright, seeing ourselves aright, and finding in Christ our only boast. Let's pray. God, I love these people, and I love this community. And, uh, been a, a tough couple of years and, and our world is in something like recovery <laughs> and uh, what we realize now is uh, we, we've taken some, some wounds along the way uh, many of them self-inflicted so Father give us each the humility uh, to look at ourselves to look at the way we think about each other to look, look at the way we um, treat each other and ask is it me Lord Have I been sinning in my attitude toward one another, thinking that I'm wise, they're not? And in that, finding our strength, our meaning, our purpose, our hope, rather than finding it in a crucified and risen Savior. Lord, teach us anew to view ourselves and each other through the lens of the gospel. And in that, help us to find compassion, understanding, and and a willingness uh, to risk ourselves in love for each other. Lord, we want people to be saved and for lives to be changed. We want to change the world. And we can't do it alone. We can't do it divided. We have to do it together. So Holy Spirit, and it is together through the power of the cross. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.